This could be the Content Rebels episode that gives you the highest return yet, because you and I are about to find out more about a workplace shift that could bring about a 250 to almost 400% return on investment. But it's not a marketing strategy. It's got nothing to do with digital. It's not organic. And it's definitely not paid. It's happiness. Hi, I'm Sarah Spence. I grew a content agency from just me to 20 people inside two years. So you'd think I'd have my shit together. And even though I try to come at everything with a rebellious curiosity, I've been so focused on growing this thing that I'm a bit behind in the trends. Join me on this journey to find out what's actually happening in the world of marketing. Welcome to The Content Rebels. Here's a question for all you marketers out there. Are you happy in your workplace? I don't mean ecstatic or even that you don't have bad days. I suppose I'm thinking more about being content, feeling valued, doing work that's meaningful and appreciated. Agencies and marketing teams have long been seen as places of hustle, and often the culture isn't that healthy. And in the spirit of deep diving into our industry, in this episode, I want to talk about happiness in the workplace. To help me with this is the CEO and founder of BU Happiness College, Declan Edwards. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to do this. You could say Declan rebelled a little when he decided to make happiness his career. So my dad's military, his dad's police force, his dad's military, his dad's military. And then uh, I run a happiness college, so (laughs) a little bit left of centre. Declan might be veering from family tradition, but it seems like he's found his thing. He's wonderfully obsessed with proving how a happy workplace is a smart business move. But before we get into the hard data to prove that to you, let's find out what a happiness college is anyway. Yeah, so BU Happiness College is a social enterprise. Uh, We started it back in 2016. Uh, after recognizing that a lot of the skills and tools that are associated with living a happy and fulfilling life are missing from our curriculum in traditional education. I don't know about you, but I know for me, when I went to school and even university, I wasn't learning much about emotional intelligence, empathy, resilience, self-awareness, or self-esteem. And so I was starting to find myself saying to people, if you're one of the lucky few people who had emotionally intelligent parents, you learned it at home, but otherwise, where are you being exposed to this? And at the same time, I was going on my own personal development journey, working with great coaches and mentors and falling in love with fields like positive psychology and mindfulness-based stress reduction and going, wow, there's really great research and tools out here. People just don't have a chance to learn it. So decided uh, on a whim that I wanted to change that and open an online college where people could learn those skills and tools. And, And to date, we now have members and graduates in five countries, which is something I'm very grateful for. And then in 2019, interesting timing with the global uh, situation that was about to occur, started finding ourselves doing a lot of workplace happiness consulting. So helping organizations quantify and measure happiness as a core KPI to stand as an employer of choice and to do better by their staff and by their team. And uh, it's, yeah, it's, it's a beautiful line of work to be in. So I'm very deeply grateful to do because the ripple effect we get to see from individuals and organizations more intentionally working on their happiness is quite profound. I love that. And I love that you clearly love what you do. Um, When you think about happiness in the workplace, what does that look like? How do you measure it? There's this uh, great research by Tony Hassai, who is the founder of Zappos. 
uh, not the lolly company that I grew up with, but the shoe company over in the US that was acquired by Amazon. Uh, so he started going, hey, our priorities as leaders and as organizations have been backwards for decades. And what he meant by that is he said these things like, traditionally in an organization, priority one is shareholders and stakeholders. It's how well can we grow the company? Uh, priority two is customers. Are we giving a great customer experience? Are we looking after them? Are they coming back? Are they referring? And priority three is staff. And what Tony and his team started to find was, hang on, what if we flip that entirely on its head? What if we look after staff happiness and employee experience and well-being first? Well, chances are happier staff are going to take better care of our customers. So therefore, our customers are going to be happier, which means they're going to refer more and come back more and not churn as much, which means our shareholders will be happier. And what he realized is the whole priority list had been backwards. And that was something that I got really invested and interested in. I went, okay, well, if the core focus here is happy staff lead to better outcomes across the board, how do we quantify workplace happiness? And what I found through a lot of my work, and I'm, I'm still completing my master's thesis specifically on this research, it's being published later this year um, on how we quantify and measure workplace happiness, was it's built on five pillars. So the first pillar is staff well-being, how healthy and well are our staff. And we look at seven different versions of well-being. So, you know, uh, emotional well-being, mental well-being, physical well-being. There's a whole range you can look at, but well-being is a pillar. Second pillar is how engaged are our staff? Do they care about what they're doing? Do they feel confident and competent in their role? Uh, third pillar is what is our underlying culture like? This is where we see things like diversity, equity, inclusion have a role. This is where we see things like psychological safety and trust, like vision, mission, and values alignment. Uh, fourth one is how great are our leaders? Uh, there's a great saying, which is a cliche for a reason, that people don't leave workplaces, they leave leaders. And so we do need to look at our leaders if we are going to create a happy workplace. And then our last pillar, our fifth one, is kind of a lag measure of the first four, which is burnout and turnover resilience. And so that will tell us if the first four are low, how long have they been low for? If we see well-being is low and it's been low for a long time, chances are we see burnover and turnover, uh, turnover resilience is also going quite low and the likelihood of people leaving or getting exhausted and burning out is really high. Uh, and so we built a tool to start measuring those five and to go, hey, let's quantify these pillars. And in doing so, we've got a way to actually track and measure that most important KPI that most organizations don't look at, which is workplace happiness. I just want to sponge your brain into mine because this is so interesting. Okay. Why do you think workplaces, and I'm talking here about agencies and internal marketing teams specifically as the primary you know, people who are listening, um, why do you think that they often wear this kind of hustle culture like a badge of honor? Mm. It's funny. When you look at the most commonly burnt out industries, there are almost two groups that are burnt out for completely opposite reasons. So on one side, we see uh, education, allied health, social work, very high burnout careers. They're normally burnt out from, we call them all as the helpers that forget to help themselves. It, very engaged with their work, massively believe in the purpose and value of it, but they give, 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 give forget to put up good boundaries, forget to look after themselves, they burn out in the process. And on the you know, other side of the spectrum, we have all this burnout happening in these traditional, let's call it high-performance service-based roles. So marketing uh, is one, uh, law and accounting is another one, like business services is a, is a third. And I think that's more being driven by this gap between the two types of happiness that can exist in an individual. 
So one type of happiness is hedonic happiness. That's our sense of achievement and accomplishment and output. It's very external. It's dopamine driven. It's exciting. It's, you know, fast paced, but it also goes really quickly. Uh, you know, the hedonic form of happiness, you could almost call it sex, drugs and rock and roll, right? It's like, what's going to give us that big hit? And then there's eudaimonic happiness, which is a sense of meaning and purpose and contentment. What I find in a lot of those uh, industries we just spoke about in that second group, those high performance industries, is they're very hedonic happiness focused. It's what's the next outcome? What's the next target? What's the next goal? What's the next accomplishment? And whilst that's valuable, because of that spike that happens and that drops off really fast, if they don't have a cushion there of eudaimonic happiness, if they don't have a cushion of connection, contentment, meaning, purpose, the come down from it or the gamble that happens if you're gambling your happiness on the accomplishments we're going to make, what if you go through a period where you're not having great output and you're not achieving great accomplishments, which is very natural in business, right? That gap leads a lot of people to go, well, I'm not getting that heroic happiness, therefore I'm not happy at work. It's like, well, really, we could just build a bit of, of a better buffer with that eudaimonic happiness. Whoa, have you just learned a new word? <laughs> I certainly have. Eudaimonic, eudaimonic happiness. Of course, we're going to naturally have times in our business or our working lives that won't be lighting up our brains with those dopamine rewards. It makes sense to have space for contentment in our everyday work. But saying all this and then actually doing it, that's a whole different ballgame. Because if I'm honest, I've been pretty obsessed since day one about creating a culture that honestly, not just says it does, but honestly values creativity curiosity and empathy. And not to put tickets on myself, but I feel like I've done a pretty good job. I get lots of feedback from the team and feedback from our clients that things are pretty good on that front. But if I'm honest, it's so hard to walk that fine line. So I took my chances and explained my situation to Declan. I wanted to see if he might be able to enlighten me on what I can do to continue to offer a genuinely supportive workplace that's also productive, successful, and profitable. Here's me trying to explain my dilemma. There's always lots of work to be done. And exactly as you said, we are in a a continuous environment. There's rarely an end to a project. You know, it's kind of, there's always something, there's um, you know, an extra bit of feedback that needs to be incorporated or, you know, it goes live, but then it's it's months until we see the results and then you feel disconnected from those. Um, and and sometimes all of that does mean that there's very little like defined space for the creativity and the curiosity. Like it's much harder to say to the team, okay, go and have an afternoon to just do whatever you fancy um, to, you know, help with your creativity. And also, you know, there are some people who just, well, don't necessarily think they need that or they then don't do that. They just go and do something else. So it's kind of like, I want them to do something that's going to benefit them in their role. But of course, I don't have control <laughs> in that way. Um, and I have tried really hard to build a continued practice into everything we do, but it definitely doesn't always work. So I, my big question here is from your point of view, how can leaders in this high performance industry space of marketing, both in-house and agency side, how can we build and maintain that culture of creativity, innovation and curiosity, which are actually fundamental to our roles, to what we do, while also building teams that get the work done <laughs> and then layering on top of that, being able to make space 
for, and I think this is really important, but for leaders and employees to be able to have space to safely process trauma from previous toxic workplaces. Um, am I asking too much? <laughs> Probably. No, I'm going to have a stab at it. I think we can get it. Uh, so I think something that's really important for leaders in any high performing industry to first grasp and really take home is that those factors we spoke about earlier uh, associated with workplace happiness, so well-being, engagement, culture, leadership, burnout risk. A lot of the time we think of those things and like staff looking after themselves or having breathing room or space to process or space to be creative as opposite to performance. We draw this weird like dichotomy where we go, well, they're either in performance mode or they're in look after themselves mode. And really they're the same thing. Right? You're not going to get great output and great results from someone who is burnt out and exhausted. There's a great saying that cuts straight to the core of it, which is a stressed brain is a stupid brain. Right? If you want your staff to think laterally, if you want them to come up with great ideas, if you want them to be creative and uh, to innovate and to be visionaries, they're not going to do that when their brain is stuck in fight and flight mode. It's that simple. And so something I talk to leaders about all the time is start viewing happiness, well-being, all these things we're talking about as the path to performance, not as separate to performance. There's this great research by uh, a man called Sean Aker from Harvard University called The Happiness Advantage. And he talks about how we often think we will be happy after some form of accomplishment, but what we actually find is by cultivating happiness now, we perform better and we're more likely to get that outcome. Uh, so that would be the first thing. The second thing I think leaders can do is start measuring what matters. Right, I alluded to it before with this idea of like quantify workplace happiness as a KPI, measure well-being. If you go, what's really important to us is creativity and innovation, find a way to track that and measure it. The reason being, as much as it's a cliche, what we measure gets managed, right? It's one thing to talk about it, but if we're not having a way to keep ourselves accountable and to have reflection points and conversations with the team about how we're progressing towards upholding that value or that practice, whatever it may be, I mean, it's just words on a whiteboard, right? I regularly say to people, the amount of workplaces now going, oh, our, our people are our greatest asset. And I'm like, cool, show me your balance sheet. Where does all your people metrics sit? And it's in the expenses column. It's not in the assets column. And so I go, well, hang on. You're telling me your people are your greatest asset, but you have no way of proving that. And they go, well, what would we put in our assets column? I'm like, easy. All the stuff we just spoke about before, how happy and healthy your staff are, how engaged they are, how aligned to vision, mission and values, how creative they are right? What their burnout tolerance is. These are all things that we can quantify as an asset in our team columns when we're tracking our company. So measure it. And then uh, I think the last point on this one would be co-create it. I think a lot of leaders make the mistake of trying to roll out initiatives uh, to serve their staff, but also to get the most out of their staff. And they don't include some pretty important stakeholders in those conversations. One being the staff they're trying to help and benefit in the first place, Right. And and the second one being getting experts and professionals who've spent their life specializing in it. I remember we've been working with a um uh we we did some work with an accounting firm and when we presented the findings of their workplace happiness diagnostic, they were like, Oh Declan, we'll be honest with you, we've spent the last two years and a lot of staff time and hours and money building our own internal version of this. And it pales in comparison to what you guys have built. And I kind of blurted out, maybe without thinking. Well, yeah, of course, you guys are accountants. You don't specialize in workplace happiness. Like, why did you spend so much time building this? I didn't build my own accounting software. 
specialist and professional, get the leaders on board because it doesn't work if the leaders don't back it and get the team to have an active role in shaping it. That is the sweet spot uh, to creating uh, projects and initiatives that actually deliver long-term results. To your point at the beginning about the, um, you know, when we go through school and university, I mean, it's not just like, let's not even get into the subject of being taught financial resilience and financial education, either just, you know, adult or <laughs> business. Um, but we're just, we're not taught this stuff. So when you go to business school or when you work with a business mentor, quite often it's stuff like, okay, well, what's the balance sheet looking like? What's the P&L? You know, what's the cash flow statement? Um, how many more clients can you get in? Uh, how can we service more of those clients? You know, it, it's it's all that stuff because that's traditionally what was measured and therefore that's what people focus on because, of course, what you said is completely right. What is measured matters. Um, we have one of our KPIs is around our tacos, um, which sounds really weird, but there's a program in Slack that you can add into Slack called Hey Taco. And if you tag someone and then you... Um, you add a taco emoji, then it gives them a taco. And so we aligned, it's our recognition program basically, and then it tracks how many tacos you've given and how many you've received. So we, as part of our KPIs, we track and we, we report on, well, how many tacos did you give and how many did you receive? And are you sitting at about the same level? I love that. And it's great because then you also, if you give a certain number of tacos, you like get given a virtual pet rock that you can then gift to someone and you can do all sorts of cool things with that. App. I love this. Um, but we then align our tacos to our values. So nice. we are meant to give tacos. It doesn't, I'm the worst one for it. I'm just like, hey, taco for you. Um, but we're meant to align it. So it's meant to be like, hey, Declan, I really wanted to give you a taco today because this is how, you know, you showed up in terms of the values of quality or confidence or trust, et cetera. Nice. So we try and tie it all together in that way. We, we just started reporting on the last quarter. Um, when we finally got our stuff together and started actually creating KPIs. And uh, suddenly everyone's very aware of how many tacos are giving and how many they're receiving. And they are seeking out more opportunities to recognize their colleagues mm. because they know that it's going to be something that's tracked. Oh, I love and, uh, that. Yeah. I love and that I, so I love it too. It's like, it's in there with, you know, along with did, you know, what percentage of clients renewed their retainer and, you know, all the necessary stuff, but it's, also things like contributions to our our remote work environment, our digital workspace. Everybody jumps on in the morning and it kind of has to answer a series of questions about it's like today I'm feeling, um, today I'm grateful for, the value I want to live today is, and um, today I'm working. So they're working hours for the day because we have flexible mm. hours. And it's, you know, it's that that we track as well. It's like how often did you contribute to those conversations because that's part of the connection that we try and build in the team. And this then goes into that next question I've got, which is at Content Copywriting, we have re worked remotely since before. It was cool. We've always been remote workforce. Um, and we try to do that honest catch up every morning and we do face-to-face um, -face retreats uh, once or twice a year. And since COVID, obviously, remote working has become a thing and agency work does lend itself nicely to that. These high-performance industries, you know, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of synchronous work that needs to happen, but there's also a massive amount of asynchronous work involved in what we do. What suggestions do you have for remote teams or hybrid teams to help them create that culture and maintain connection even when they are physically apart? Mm. Yeah, I'll, I'll start by answering this by highlighting something 
that I've been more and more mindful of lately as we continue this conversation around flexible work and hybrid work, because we've been doing the same. We've been, you know, uh, flexible and hybrid work from day dot. I remember saying to our team, I was like, I've employed you all as very capable functioning adults. I'm going to treat you like capable functioning adults. I'm not going to give you set times or expect you to be certain places. I just expect you to do your work well and to bring the best version of yourself to the workplace. And I remember we did have an office space for a little while. The building was sold during COVID. And uh, our whole team was like, why Why did we even have that office space? Like, we all prefer this. We do our monthly catch-up days in person. You know, we still do our retreats and events. What I want to highlight here, though, is it is a privilege to be able to be even looking at things like flexible and hybrid working arrangements. Like, for a lot of the... Um, uh, a lot of the economic landscape at the moment, a lot of the roles, people just can't do that, right? Like, it's just not a thing. So, if first and foremost, I would say treat it like a privilege and not a expectation. I think that's a risk we're taking at the moment as we navigate this is everyone's starting to go, oh, well, I expect, you know, full flexibility. It's like, well, that's not going to be viable for every single workplace or for every single role. So, if you're even having these conversations, that's a bloody cool place to be, right? Take Take an attitude of gratitude towards that. In terms of how you do it really well, I think more than focusing on balance or flexibility or all these terms, I actually think autonomy is a lot more valuable because what works for one person in your team might not necessarily work for another. And so I'm seeing a lot of workplaces make this mistake of going, oh, well, we're going to be flexible because we're not going to, we're going to work from home Fridays. And I'm like, well, that could be great for some people and the rest of your team could bloody hate it, right? They're setting these set in stone rules and trying to apply them to everyone. So the first thing I would say, which goes back to what we mentioned before about if you're looking at doing something like this, involve your team, talk to them about it, right? But autonomy and ownership is huge, right? So asking your team to get actively involved with what that looks like for them uh, is is very powerful. In that note as well, I would say talking to them about how to know whether it's working or not, right? So being clear with each other about like, hey, how are we going to track whether this is working? And, and, and when I say working, not just in terms of like, hard skills output and outcomes, but also in those cultural ones like we spoke about earlier. And so being able to come back to, hey, we're going to track whether or not this is working by, yes, how many of you, you know, your clients are renewing and all those things, but we're also going to track it by how connected you feel to your teammates. That was something we navigated as we moved away from the office space we did have to go back to fully remote working. We actually built that into our KPIs for a whole 12 months after that move to see how connection with each other went. And we noticed it's starting to drop. So we're like, okay, we need to have conversations about how we're going to reconnect. And we just opened it up to the team. How do we want to do that? So similar to you, we do uh, uh, daily stand-up first thing in the morning. So in our day, we say, hey, this is when I'm available. This is what I'm working on. This is who I need help from. Uh, and this is my two-word check-in for the day. So if I was to describe how I'm feeling coming into work today in only two words, what might those two words be? It cuts past a lot of the crap and just gets straight to the core. Um, we also do every Monday, we do a team scrum where we do a full video, send it through to each other. There's things in that like, who do I want to give a shout out to this week? Who's my recognition point? Who do I want to collaborate a little bit more with this week and touch base with? Uh, what is my core priorities this week that matter most? And so we built some questions in there. And then once a month, we have a team day where we come together and, and do some deep work and something fun. Um, so whatever it is for you as an organization, if you go, okay, first and foremost, we want autonomy. We want our team to co-create these. Uh, second, we want to be very clear on how we're going to track whether it works or not. And third, uh, we want to build, I would say, a daily, weekly, and monthly touch points, particularly because the greatest thing you're going to lose uh, if you're not facilitating that is going to be connection and collaboration. Right? There's a lot of beauty that comes out of those two things. And I, I highlight this so vocally at the moment when I talk to organizations because 
whilst we're all talking about this move towards work from home and four days work weeks and all these big shifts and, and shiny objects that people want to jump on, I think what we're missing is the findings over the last few years, and this was pre-pandemic, it's only gotten worse since 2020. Uh, we are living through the most lonely time in Western human history. Uh, like We are the most connected we've ever been as a species technologically, but more people than ever are reporting feeling lonely. And so if we're now taking away some of those connection points and relationships that can happen in the workplace, I worry about how that's going to exacerbate that loneliness. I'm not saying we need to all go back to the way things were with work and all be in the office. I'm a huge believer in flexible and autonomous work. And so we've done it from 2016. But I think we need to be having conversations around how do we keep our team connected and supported. And I would be looking at daily, weekly, monthly as the checkpoints for that. Okay. So as creators, we need connection, psychological safety and autonomy. This all makes sense to me. And as I said, I do think I'm trying my best to create that in my agency, but I'd be naive to expect that everything is always going to be okay in a workplace, especially in the current financial environment. But here's the thing. I know this stuff works because without knowing exactly what I was doing, I've been testing it in my team. The pressure has been on for us lately, as I know it has been for so many. And it's been our culture that has seen us through. I'll admit, it's not been as strong as it could be, especially at the minute. But it's been enough, I think, to keep us together. That eudaimonic cushion, we do have that, at least parts of it anyway, because I think otherwise, without it, I probably would have lost the whole team by now. And so I told Declan this, and then he told me about the small business myth. The myth that keeps us small businesses smaller and why we just can't afford to believe it any longer. I mean, look, small businesses are the backbone of our economy. Right? The vast majority of businesses aren't the big multinationals that have massive budgets and hundreds of staff. And I think there's this myth that leaders go, oh, well, all that stuff will be good to look at once we're a certain size or once we're successful or once we can afford to do it. And and what I'm really trying to bust when we go out and work with organizations around this stuff is you can't afford to not do it, right? Especially in this market where talent is more and more focused on how happy am I going to be at work and how much does it align with my values. They're making decisions now based on your culture. So if you want to have the best staff, if you want to keep the best staff, if you want people to perform their best at work, you need to be looking at this stuff, not as an afterthought, but as a priority. And to put it in raw numbers, because I get it too, I'm a business owner, I know how to put it in ways that people will listen. All of the evidence and research in this space for the last 20 years, the number they're looking at, depending on the specific research you look at, says for every dollar you intentionally invest into stuff to improve workplace happiness, your expected return on investment in 12 months is anywhere from $2.63 to $3.70. Now, if I told you that there was a stock that you could put a dollar into and we give you $2.63 to $3.70 back, what would everyone be doing? It would be a rush to buy it. If I told you there was a horse that was basically guaranteed to win and give you $3 back, people would rush to bet on it. Why is it that people still make the mistake of going, I'll get to that later? Right? You're cutting yourself and your business and your team so short by doing so. So what do you say then to you know, either the CMO or the senior marketing manager or the you know, small business agency owner or the freelancer who 
is just getting the most inordinate amount of pressure, either from you know their bosses or they they know that budget cuts are coming, for instance, or there's just been a really tight few months in the business. Like you want your team to still feel psychologically safe, and obviously the threat of any of those things is is going to stifle that. Should should we all like what's the trade off? Should we all just be keeping that stressed completely to ourselves? Obviously, reaching out to other people outside the business to whom we can get help for ourselves. But is that going to be the best way to get through it? To to not share that things, not that they're toxic, but that things may be too tight mm. and therefore stifle the creativity? Mm. Yeah, I think there's two things here. One is part of the price of leadership and the reason you get paid more to be in a leadership position is you take an inordinate amount of the responsibility. Mm. So congratulations, this is part of your role. Stop complaining about it. Stomach it, right? The amount of leaders I see, they're like, oh, it's just so much more stress. I'm like, yeah, that's why you're paid more, right? That's why it's on your place. You are in a leadership role. And I think as a leader, it's reminding ourselves it may not be my fault, but it is my responsibility, right? What happens in our team is not my fault, but it is my responsibility to address it and to help the team move through it. The second thing I would say is I'm a huge believer in radical transparency in these situations. If we go back to the analogy of treating us like an elite sporting team, Right. We don't need to cushion it and go, you know, oh, we've won no games this season, but everything's looking fine. Like, we'll all be good. Let's just try some new plays. Like, if if a leader does that, what actually happens, ironically, if a leader is too cushiony and positive in difficult times, uh, what we've noticed is that the team's uh, trust in their leader and how competent they rate their leader actually declines. Right. Your team isn't stupid. That if you sugarcoat things too much in a difficult time and a difficult chapter, your team actually starts to go, they're obviously either oblivious or they're an incompetent leader, right? And so facing it head on going, hey, guys, the reality is we are in a tough climate at the moment. And I think a lot of organizations need to be having these conversations now because economically we're going through one of the most challenging times of the last 20 years in Australia. Cost of living, interest rates, you know, potential recession, all these things that are happening. Realistically, if a lot of your team is under the age of 40, they have never worked through an economic downturn in, in Australia. We didn't have one in 2008. Mm. Uh, we were led through the global cr- uh, financial crisis pretty well. And so this is an uncertain time right, for a lot of people. And so being bold enough and brave enough as a leader to go, hey, things are challenging right now. Things are uncertain right now. Things are a bit tight. Now, that means that we need to f- identify There's this thing called the Pareto principle, which is like 80% of your results will come from 20% of your actions. We need to get really strategic right now with what are the 20% that are going to deliver the 80%. Mm. Let's focus on those first and then let's still have this room for risk-taking, you know, uh, trying new things, testing the waters, still being innovative. But let's make sure our foundations are solid first. Uh, It would be like, again, if I use the example of a sporting team, let's look back and find what plays got us the best results. Let's lean on those more often. And then let's top it up with a few new things that we're going to test. Okay, okay, okay. Here's one thing you need to know if you haven't worked it out already. Declan isn't some kind of wishy-washy happiness guru. He's managed to create a way to measure this somewhat intangible and often elusive thing called happiness. And he's got the hard data to back it up. And when he talks about the return on investment like that, it's obvious that workplace happiness should be front and centre as a key indicator of your business success. So given Declan is a data kind of guy, 
I was curious about how a happiness college actually markets itself. And so I asked Declan if he markets the actual feeling of happiness. And if so, how does he get that message through that it's more than just a feeling, that it's actually and can be a core KPI? What we realized pretty early on was happiness is a pretty core human desire. Uh, Everyone shares the desire to be happier in life. But if you just market it as like, hey, this is a college to teach you the right skills and tools and strategies to live a happier life, it's compelling, but there's no uh, incentive to to prioritize it now, right? And I'm very clear with people where I'm like, look, doing this work is is very important and people working on themselves and learning these skills is, I believe, crucially important to um, creating a happier life for themselves and then spreading a ripple effect that makes a, a happier world. But I also know they're going to prioritize things that are being very painful to them in the moment. And so we recognized the common threads amongst people who came to the college were these things like burnout, emotional overwhelm and exhaustion, anxiety, stress, right? And we're going, well, hey, the solution to those things is ironically the exact same tools and strategies that help you move up the ladder towards a happier life. And so there's almost this push-pull, pain-pleasure sort of cycle that we found resonated more with people. Uh, And then on the workplace side, yeah, it's going, how do we quantify it? And kind of turning what I mentioned before, I think a big part of our marketing message is going, these previously uh, considered wishy-washy or conceptual frameworks like culture and well-being at work, and they sound really nice to talk about, but what are we doing with them? They were viewed as intangible and were viewed as opposite to performance. And I think what's helped us get a lot of traction and breakthrough is like, no, these are the one and the same. Like, when I meet with like uh, teams and organizations to talk about doing their workplace happiness report, there's often a CFO in the room and I'm like, buddy, I can talk your language. Let me show you with evidence and data, right? How much of an impact this is going to make on your bottom line and you take it or leave it, right? It's that simple. And so I think that's helped on both sides getting clarity and specificity into what our message is and how we actually help people and serve people. And to be honest with you, it took us four years to get to that point. Mm. The first four years of running happiness college, because it's, it is a new industry, right? Like it's, I wouldn't say to our team, bloody hell, if, if we were a carpenter or something and people just automatically knew what we did by our title, we it, it would have been so much easier in so many ways, right? So to be able to come out and create a new sector and a new space took a lot of market education. And it took a lot of self-reflection for ourselves. For four years, we didn't even know what a happiness college did, really. We didn't know how to communicate it. Um, and so we've been on a journey for ourselves with that. I'm very thankful that we've always lent into content marketing as a big part of it and to I guess, thought leadership marketing as well and positioning ourselves as like, hey, we are actually leading experts in the field of happiness and and what it looks like and what it means to live a happier, more fulfilling life as an individual and as a workplace. Um, and yeah, it's been it's been a long ride, but it's something that I'm still very grateful to play an active part in. Like mm. I, I genuinely enjoy getting involved with our marketing guys and with our marketing team to create good content and to have good conversations like this. Yeah, awesome. And so, yeah, tell me what's what's been working for you guys lately in terms of content, digital, all of that. What's what's been your best plays? Yeah, on the individual side, uh, we've always found live events work exceptionally well for us. Be that guest speaking for another organization, we found very early that partnering up with uh, uh, the fitness industry worked really well because there's people in there who are already intentionally working on their well being, but they're only doing it from one lens, and you would be. Uh, perhaps surprised to find out how much mental health and emotional well-being challenges run rampant in the fitness industry where comparison and expectation and perfectionism are so high, 
right? So you get people in there who want to work on themselves. They're just not doing it holistically. So speaking at gyms has always been fantastic for us. We do live talks and events uh, around Australia. We used to do it. Geez, I'll never do it this way again. Speak of burnout. In 2019, I did seven cities in 11 days and then flew overseas and did a speaking tour of Texas. Um, never again will I do it that way. Now we now we do one talk every couple of months at a different city. Um, but it's been interesting to notice that there's almost this appetite again for like live webinars. So we do a lot of content on social media, talk about what we're doing, and then go, hey, by the way, I'm going to do a pop-up event on stress or a pop-up event on burnout. It's 10 bucks. We're going to donate a meal to someone in need for every ticket we sell. Uh you know, jump on for us. It's a loss leader. We don't really make any money on the event, but it gives us a chance to talk about this stuff and to introduce people to the idea of happiness college and a happiness coach. And then some of them will go through and join the college and enroll. Uh, and with workplaces, honestly, the biggest one has been LinkedIn. I've been blown away by how powerful LinkedIn is uh, for driving the workplace happiness consulting side of our organization. Uh, I, I It's quickly become my favorite platform to put content out on. Um, I think it lends itself really well to thought leadership and positioning yourself as an authority in your space. Um, and so, yeah, even when we we're launching the Workplace Happiness Diagnostic Tool and the Happy Workplace Accreditation, I was just putting posts up like, hey, tag the happiest workplaces in the Hunter region. I want to talk to their leaders. I want to find out what they're doing well. And people would tag away. I'd just contact them and go, hey, we've built this. Apparently, you're doing great things. We've got a test that can prove it or show you where your gaps are. Uh, and if if you are doing great things, we'll give you an accreditation as a like recognized happy workplace. And you can put that in your job ads and in your EVP and in your branding. And um, none of that would have happened had it not been for having a bit of an audience on LinkedIn. I'm interested in your perspective on the world of AI and chat GPT and uh, perhaps how it plays out in what you do. But do you feel like chat GPT particularly is a friend, a foe or a flash in the pan? I think it's a friend. Uh, and I say that because I'm assuming it's listening and one day they'll take over and I want it to know that I'm friendly. with. No, I say it because we got on it pretty early. Uh, we integrated it into our team a couple months ago now, probably earlier this year. Literally, when I say integrated, we've given it a name. So our chat GP is called Happy, which I took a day off after coming up with the name HAP-E, like Wally, but for a happy robot. Uh, definitely took a break after coming nice. up with that one. I was like, I deserve an afternoon off. I, I named <laughs> it so well. So our team was like, hey, Happy, can you help me with this? Uh, we gave it a full role description and like expectations of its role. Like we onboarded it like a staff member. Wow. And our team has loved it. And I think what excites me about it over the last, I'm going to say 100 years or so, right, from the Industrial Revolution to now, if you go back to the Industrial Revolution days, probably even to the 1950s, the majority of work was focused on what we could do with our hands. It was manufacturing. It was, you know, agriculture. It was, it was manual output. That then became increasingly automated and became increasingly assisted by machines. And so we moved to an economy of what could we do with our heads, right? And so we're moving more towards knowledge base and like, you know, what can we come up with as ideas? I think this is the start of the next chapter of human development where increasingly our work is going to be less about what we can do with our hands and with our head, but more what we can do with our hearts. That humanistic side, that emotional intelligence, that empathy, that connection to others, that service of something greater than ourselves, I think is going to be an ever-growing market. And more and more in every industry, in every industry, I predict, it's what's going to make you stand out, is how well you've developed those soft skills or those human skills, those heart-led skills. And it's what's going to future-proof your job. Because at the end of the day, 
like with the way AI is growing and developing, it is going to reach a point where it's as smart as us, if not smarter. But I think it's going to take a while. And maybe this is just me trying to vehemently protect my own job. But it's going to take a while before it has those emotional intelligence soft skills and before it can do the human heart-centered work. Mm. I'm excited for this next chapter of human development and what it means for our careers. I love that. And I'm going to say it again because it's so worth repeating. Our work will be less what we can do with our hands and our heads and more what we can do with our hearts. I have had so many conversations about AI this year and nobody has framed it in that way. And I absolutely love that as a concept and a way to look at it. I agree that we're at the start of this next phase, but I just picture it differently to Declan. I picture it more about what we can do with our ideas and creativity. It's been about manual output from the brain for such a long time, but we're speeding up so many of those processes now. Now it's more about those creative human ideas that come from both the heart and the head. That's what we're at the start of. For me, it's that combo of the approach of both head and heart. But what a beautiful way to look at the changing nature of work. And this whole conversation with Declan really ties into the future of our workplaces. Because the future is here, it's now, and it's not just about AI, it's about our very human hearts. Here's to more workplaces adding happiness as a core KPI and embracing their greatest asset, their people. Thanks for joining me on this journey. If you want to stay rebellious in how you practice marketing, how you show up in your workplace and how you live your life, please subscribe to The Content Rebels wherever you listen to your podcasts. This podcast was recorded on a Awabakal and Darkenjund country. Produced by Pod and Pen Productions.